It's the cereal business. This is a box widget company that you have in your econ textbook and that you have in your accounting textbook. Stuff goes in, stuff goes out. So there shouldn't be too much room to do anything interesting. I'm having a hard time mustering, not outrage, but sort of scorn for management or anything else. I just sort of come away seeing they're they're in a tough industry, they haven't done a good job, and their stock may or may not be overvalued. Welcome to Behind the Idea, a podcast about cereal. No, 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 no. Behind the Idea is where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we're looking at Kellogg's cereal manufacturer and whether short sellers are going to take a bite out of the company. But first, some background and the disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any company discussed, and nothing on here should be taken as investment advice. If you like what we're doing, please leave a review and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts. Today's topic, Precious Point Investments posted a short idea on their website about Kellogg's, we all know Kellogg's, the breakfast and snacks giant. They point to a lot of potential accounting games that management might be playing with the books that are masking the true state of the business. Does the accounting matter to investors? The theme of today's episode is focusing on what matters on the short side. So Daniel, give us some background on the cereal business and sort of the environment in which Pressions Point has put forth this article. The consumer packaged goods industry, all those big boxes that you buy at the supermarket, they are sort of a second level victim of what's going on with buying through the internet and with modern consumer behavior. It just, it seems that brands are less important And so that's a headwind. People want to eat healthier. They're less interested in the processed food of the second half of the 20th century. And so old school giants like General Mills, Pepsi, Kraft Heinz, and Kellogg struggle in that sort of environment. I pulled up a chart just looking at total returns for those companies over the last year. The only company in a peer group that I could find that was up was Hormel Foods, and I I think Pinnacle Foods is also up. But Kraft Heinz, which is a position that is in Warren Buffett's portfolio, is down 30%. Pepsi is down 12%, etc. And so it's not been a good time for these companies. Prishan's point makes the, the argument that Kellogg's implicitly argues that Kellogg's hasn't really suffered quite as much as they should given this environment because of things that they're doing to make it look like their results are a little bit better than they really are in the current environment. Cool. Okay. So yeah, packaged good industry is suffering potentially a secular change in consumer preferences, especially with respect to cereal and snacks. And uh, yeah, you mentioned sort of the outline of Prussian's points argument. I'm going to just break that down into what I think are the three key points. Uh, The first one is the decline of cereal. 
Generally speaking, people don't want serial anymore. That's sort of in the background and hovering over the rest of the argument, but it's an important piece. The second is potential accounting issues related to collecting receivables and paying payables and kind of how management seems to be working that system potentially to the detriment of investors' understanding. And then finally was just general comments about management turnover and strategic changes and whether those are playing out. Preston's point is bearish on sort of all three of these aspects, the consumer preferences, the accounting issues, and management strategy. So let's start off with this first point, which is the decline of cereal and just the difficulty of the operating environment. Daniel, what do you think? Is this a real thing? Is this a real trend? I think probably if you look at their revenue is going down the last two years, they've managed to increase income, but free cash flow is flat. And General Mills is a company that's down quite a bit. And they're obviously a big player in that cereal industry as well. And so beyond that, I can just anecdotally make jokes about avocado toast or Instagram breakfasts or whatever. But there's data suggesting that it now is not a boom time. And then there's enough reason that you might surmise that it's less common for people to just pour themselves a bowl of cereal and pour some milk on it. What, what's your perspective? What do you, what do you see? I was jogging this morning and I was, who's the anecdotal guy? Go to the store and invest based on that. Um, Peter Lynch. Yeah. Peter Lynch. I just want to go Peter Lynch on this one. When I was growing up, I would eat three bowls of cereal for breakfast before I went to school. And then when I got home from school for an after-school snack, I'd eat two or three more bowls of cereal. So I was eating basically a box of cereal a day. <laughs> my house, my childhood home was basically like a giant cereal processing factory with really high throughput. Obviously, that would have been great for Kellogg's, although we were more of a General Mills household. We were big Cheerios and Wheaties okay. family. Full Pretty disclosure, healthy. I have celiac disease, so this that affects some of my personal experience here. Basically, the <laughs> cereal industry is like the giant poison manufacturer for people with celiac disease. We're, I'm not in the target market. But nevertheless, there are, you know, rice checks are gluten-free. There are Cheerios. They rolled out a gluten-free Cheerios a few years ago. So shout out to General Mills and Kellogg's for looking out for me. Nevertheless, despite the excellence of those cereals and their deliciousness and their safety with respect to my allergies, I don't eat cereal at all anymore. Unless you count muesli. I eat muesli and yogurt. I eat eggs and sweet potatoes for breakfast. And I think, I don't think I'm alone. I think this is a real shift in consumer preferences. And I think it's even, you know, you think of the food, the other thing I thought of was the food guide pyramid. That used to be a pyramid that was heavily supported by cereal and mm -hmm. grains and carbohydrates. And you know, the FDA has updated the nutritional guidelines. I think now they're like 50% of your diet should be vegetables, basically, and then maybe 25% should be carbohydrates and the rest protein. That's a huge shift in our understanding, collective understanding of what nutrition is. And I don't know anyone who's serious about health who considers a high proportion of carbohydrate intake to be a healthy approach to, to diet, fitness, any of that stuff. 
so to go go Peter Lynch, I really I think there's something to this, and I think that there is a generational shift. My dad still eats his bowls of cereal before work every day, and if he wants a snack, he eats a bowl of cereal, and like he's a healthy, fit guy. But I think there's a generational change. I think avocado toast is overstated, but we're protein. I, you mentioned the Hormel doing well. That's a that's a protein. That's a more protein heavy. Brand and the other one, what was their name? P- Pinnacle. They're, Pinnacle uh, Foods. They're the. That's Udi's gluten free. <laughs> Udi's gluten. So this is the companies that seem to be doing better are not exposed. They don't have this risk of carbohydrate exposure. I, I believe that thesis basically, and I think I think that's maybe the strongest aspect of this. I know I'm risking rambling right now, but I was at the Whitney Tilson short selling conference earlier in May. And one of the ideas that kind of blew my mind was a short Budweiser thesis. The short Bud pitch was made by Enrique Abeta Ubios of Project M Group. Back to Mike. It was short Budweiser. And the thesis was these companies look cheap and they become private equity targets. And the reason is because they look like they have really stable cash flows. But Underneath that, there are these secular shifts in consumer preferences that are masking a massive decline in the business, and you can't project any growth, and you might have to project negative growth. And if the companies are levering up or doing any sort of financial engineering to manufacture returns for investors, then that's a real concern. And I like that framework for companies that are exposed to changes in consumer preferences because it undermines this general steady eddy, dividend paying, solid blue chip company thesis that supports a lot of companies that may be more vulnerable than we think at first glance. And I think maybe that framework, which I really appreciated, shout out to Whitney Tilson, uh, friend of Seeking Alpha, shout out to Quoth the Raven, who uh, spoke, huge contributor for Seeking Alpha and an entertaining guy all around. To get back to the point, though, this may be one of those. And that's why it's, it's interesting to see this sort of shift in consumer preferences. But maybe let's move on to the next point, which is the accounting. So what's, the, what's your take on the accounting treatment here? If we can sort of go over what Prescient's point is looking at and how we sort of view the argument with respect to the accounting. What I like about this, I remember when we talked about Kerastale Capital, speaking of short sellers who were at that conference, their analysis on PTI, and we talked about how it showed a level of sophistication that it wasn't just taking the company's word, they were really breaking down the data. I think this is something similar in that Precious Point is looking at a few different programs that Kellogg's has all of which are above the board, but which do change definitions a little bit compared to what an investor might usually expect in this situation. So the first thing they talk about is the idea that they've lengthened the terms that they're willing to accept payments from their customers. So they're saying you can pay us in 120 days instead of 60 days or whatever the case may be. And Precious Point's basic argument is, first of all, this is a bad sign, probably in reaction to Walmart and other people 
clamping down on payment terms, and so Kellogg's had to react to that. But also what it does is it changes timing of your true revenue and when it's recognized because if I understood it, and I'm sure I will get things wrong in here, first of all, if you give me favorable payment terms, it's essentially like you're saying sign up for four years and you'll get a 50% discount. Great. I might buy, the, it's Costco. I might buy more up front rather than waiting until I need it just in time. And he even quotes, I think somebody in the industry says, usually these purchases are made just when you need it, but if you give us payment terms, we'll buy further out. And he, and Pression Point does a nice job of talking to a few people in the industry as well. So that was the first thing. And it also, so it pulls forward revenue and it just kind of distorts, you, you have a harder sense of what's the real story, what's really going on right now, what's the real demand for the product. There is also a similar, they're buying, they're selling their receivables. So they're getting, they're extending these terms then they're giving them to financing companies saying, you guys go collect this and give us cash up front, which I can't remember other cases where I've seen this, but it's come up in short ideas in the past that I've looked at. And I think it's interesting to think about on the one hand, there's no free lunch for Kellogg. So they're probably giving away something or free breakfast. And on the other hand, there is free breakfast. There is a, I, I don't know how big a deal this is as well. Uh, the author argues that these sold out receivables should be accounted for as short term debt. They do basically, he calls this factoring and then there's reverse factoring, which is the flip side of this with their payment terms to their suppliers. And so those are sort of the two big things, but they're doing quite a lot. Do you want to jump in here before I go through them or do you want me to, there were two other things I think that the author called out as accounting issues. Yeah, let's stick with the, let's stick with the factoring and the payment terms and the, the revenue recognition, the cash flow from operations recognition, and this kind of balance sheet movement that Kellogg's is doing. I want to explore a little bit, first of all, the idea that this can be, these can be legitimate activities in my mind. In your own household, for example, you may postpone paying your credit card bill until it comes due just so that you manage your cash flows appropriately. Or you may have a part-time flexible job where you have a more flexible payment arrangement with that person. If you view, if I were doing freelance work and I earned that revenue, but I had flexible terms because the relationship is different between that entity and my general work where I get a steady paycheck from Seeking Alpha, that wouldn't be, nothing is wrong about that. And so I think there's there's something defensible about managing your cash flows optimally, but there's a big, big caveat here. And Prescient's point makes this point, which is it's the cereal business. This is a box widget company that you have in your econ textbook and that you have in your accounting textbook. This is not, you deliver, you buy corn and gluten, you buy tons of gluten <laughs> and put it, dump it into the cereal and make the cereal and then you sell it to grocery stores, basically. You put it in a box first, but you know, there's stuff goes in, stuff goes out. Maybe you have payment terms that are like, 
whatever that's called, like three net 30 or whatever, where you extend your right. customers some benefit for paying up front versus, but still being flexible. But basically that should be an efficient financing market. So there shouldn't be too much room to do anything interesting here. Again, you just make cereal and snacks. You know, this is mm-hmm. this isn't some sort of wild transaction. The demand should be very steady. So why would you be financing things? Customers buy a box of cereal a week or whatever it is. Grocery stores know that. Everyone up and down the supply chain sort of knows what the demand is unless demand is in a structural decline. So, but in that case, financing is not going to help you. So I I wanted to explore this sort of two sides of this coin where maybe they're doing this. It doesn't seem like it should create any long-term benefit. And is it appropriate for a company of this type to be exploring? You know, life is simple. Why are you making it complicated by extending your foot by pulling in revenue earlier by managing these kinds of fringe elements of your customer and supplier relationships. What do you think? Yeah, I think it raises questions. One thing I like Prishan's point doesn't allege any fundamental misleading on the behalf of management or whatever else, but they do mention they spoke to Kellogg's investor relations and quote somebody from that team in their article and they mentioned that there is a metric, a cash flow metric that is tied to the com- company management incentives, and it's public. And I'll quote from the article what the investor relations person says is, it's going to look at least optically like we have negative cash flow if we don't have the securitization. And they're closing, they're stopping at least the receivable side of this program, the factoring. So that's what I mean by it. I mean, it's optical, but it's viewed. So they're incentivized to maintain their cash flow, whether it's literally in their contracts or because Wall Street focuses on those numbers and is less likely to go down to note two in the financial statements and see where they say accounts receivables sold or whatever else. So there's some incentives. The other thing, though, to this is they're they're not doing this anymore. And if you look at Prishan's points adjustments, they get smaller. They adjust for revenue to try to account for how much revenue was maybe pulled forward. And they adjust for a few other things, a different lines of different statements. And it just occurred to me, it was smaller in 2017 than 2016, the adjustment. And at a certain point, it'll go to zero. So it's, it's a weird management decision for it just being serial and it being a very predictable business, cereal, snacks, whatever and else. snacks, yeah, and snacks. I think snacks are still relatively predictable, but ultimately, if I make five this year and three next year, is that any better or worse than making six this year and two next year? And in, in this, You know what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like this is that big a... It's a good place to shine a spotlight, but I'm also not sure that it's a, in and of itself a major it's weird and it's overly complex i'm not sure it's a huge problem i think it's i'll qualify that if as we continue but what do you think are, are you buying what i'm selling yeah i want to jump on i know from experience that investors can incorrectly extrapolate the current situation into the future 
and therefore take a PE ratio and say, hey, it's like the PE is 10, hypothetically. That's a great return on my investment. It'll go on forever. Kellogg's is a steady company. Everyone needs cereal. And then if investors are making that kind of decision, then these short-term accounting boosts are material. So if they're pricing it for these sort of quasi-adjusted earnings, cash flows, revenues, then it does matter whether you get, whether you collect three this year and two next year or four this year and two next year. Because when next year you get one instead of four and you expected four to continue forever, then that can be a really huge impact on investors' perception of the company and the valuation. But I had a couple other notes to respond to some of the things. So I think this article is kind of a case study in why I understand investor relations not talking to short sellers because they say, and who knows what the context was in terms of the entire conversation, but investor relations gave precious prescience point. I keep saying precious point. It's (laughs) prescience point. They gave them some real ammo here, I think. It makes it look bad to say, well, look, we're kind of managing our cash flows according to management incentives. Even even the perception of that is got to be a negative. And maybe credit to them for owning up to it. And maybe that's a right. point in favor of this not being that big a deal. But I think there is enough of a case to be made there. And you never know how much further management might go once they start down this path of potentially trying to gussy up the perception of performance. And I think that's another reason to to sort of take the analysis seriously, at least. And to that point on the accounting, I had to look a lot of stuff up here. And this, when I was reading this article, um, for one thing, I was like, when they when they talk about factoring receivables, I was like, but investors should be looking at you know cash flow from operations, free cash flow. Like those can't be factoring receivables can't be booked as an operating cash flow. And then I looked it up, and like, and Preston's point makes this point. They were. It's like boggles my mind that a transaction that's entirely balance sheet driven can be booked as operating cash flow. I understand why, because look, you're finally collecting cash for an activity that you did. On the other hand, did you really earn? I know why it has to, why that, why that's justifiable, but they changed it to investing activities in 2017, according to the article. Which partly why we have this dynamic taking place with management. And it is funny, at least that, Oh, that's not operating cash flows anymore. Oh, then we, we suddenly factoring is a lot less important to us. It's a really, I found that a very rich dynamic. And I also found that this insight particularly interesting. It makes me think like you should know accounting, Mike, if you want to invest in companies. And to all our listeners out there, if you're unfamiliar with factoring receivables and how they're treated on the cash flow statement, that's a... I don't know. That made me sort of sit up in my chair a little bit. Like I had to look this up. I need to be, I can't just look at the stock screeners. You know, this is why you got to dig into the filings and really know your, 
know your stuff. Which, which line in the cash flow statement is it? Because I couldn't, I, as we were talking, I found it in the notes, but I didn't see where it was showing up in the statements itself. Did you find that? No, I was just shaking my head for a long time. That long pause would be shaking my head. <laughs> I don't know what line it comes. I mean, is it, it's not collection from customer. I would, I, they've got trade receivables. Know. Yeah. I don't know. I was just curious, but it's, it's fascinating. That's like, are we getting too nerdy? Let's zoom, let's zoom back out a little bit and go to the second, second part of the accounting issues or you have something else. What, well, I, I was go yeah, I was going to go to the other side of it, which was the reverse factoring, which was essentially them backing into the opposite for their payables, as I understood it. When I read it, and I, I need to reread it as we're talking, but when I read it, that occurred to me as being more obviously a challenge and worse. And Precious Point quotes the S&P's comments on this and says, we may make a debt adjustment for the customer. And that to me, even if I sort of suggested that factoring to me is a secondary issue to the business itself, reverse factoring to me, that seems like at the very least you have to count that as debt. Uh, because you're you're just putting off when you're going to pay back your suppliers. That is essentially debt. Like that's how that it works. And so I thought that was a very interesting point. Did you find that? Did you find? Do you agree that that was a bigger issue, or did you? How did you compare those two? The factor and the reverse factor. Uh, so two things on that. First, to your question of whether I thought that was somehow worse. I think it's kind of interesting that if there are demand troubles with the end customer, that this dynamic kind of flows up the supply chain of mm -hmm. trying to, everyone just like tightens up and tries to hold on to their cash. Mm -hmm. And so Kellogg's customers are demanding more favorable terms from Kellogg, who then in turn is demanding more favorable terms from its suppliers. And they can do all that with each other all they want, but ultimately they're going to be governed by what their customers do. And so I think it's just, I just thought it was interesting that this dynamic was echoing up and down the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Is it worse? I go back to my analogy of the household. I think that you have room to negotiate with your counterparties over the terms of your payments and whether those are collections from customers or those are pay payments to suppliers. That's a free country. You can do what you want. I don't like it either way, but I did want to bounce that to my second point, which is I'm not sure that you should be... It felt a little like double counting to me to look at this from both an income or cash flow perspective and a balance sheet perspective at the same time. It felt like that was presented in the article as in addition, the, the revenue issues are creating liabilities or creating sort of issues with the balance sheet. And to me, and this is a genuine question for you, Daniel, do you view these as interconnected and therefore it should just be a treatment of of a single problem 
that manifests itself on all the financial statements? Or do you think there's something to this? And maybe I'm straw manning them a little bit, but did you, did you notice anything about how it would be like, boom, operating activities, boom, balance sheet. And they were almost treated in my reading as two separate things. And how do you think about, about these dynamics and how they play out on the different financial statements? I didn't think about it as much as you did, and so I think you were sharp to yep. clue, in, <laughs> clue into that. I think what you say makes sense. The balance sheet, I guess where I would focus my thoughts for this story overall are the balance sheet and the revenue line. I can assume Precious Point mentions that Kellogg has twice tried to run cost-cutting programs. I can assume that Kellogg's can figure out their margins, can figure out how to manage their accounts payable, accounts receivable, and so forth. And so to me, that that's I guess that's why the reverse factoring for me was more obviously an issue is because I could see, yeah, that's debt. I guess that's how, and so that's, I didn't literally break it down the way you did, but when I read it, I said, oh yeah, that hits a note. That That should be debt. That's obviously equivalent to a short a revolver or whatever else and so i guess that's how so i think what you say makes sense that i don't know if it's double counting or not i would have to sort of look through it a little bit closer in sort of a flow but i hear what you're saying yeah yeah you should you should come back to it and look at it you know as closely as i did daniel that would probably be <laughs> i will try a good idea i look super closely even though you totally caught me without really having any idea about the financial statements on the 10K. I think let's just move on. There are some little sort of ticky-tack other elements. You know, he talks a little bit about how the channel is filling up, and I think the phrase channel stuffing even comes out. I kind of want to bracket that just because, like, if demand dries up, then what's a company supposed to do? Of course, they're going to push stuff out into the channel and hope for the best. You know, I don't really see that as... I understand why it's of a piece with all the other accounting management that the Prussians point is pointing to, but right. uh, but I don't think we need to dwell on that. So let's get into the third thing, which you sort of started to allude to, which is the cost management and the turnaround efforts and overall management the treatment here in this idea of that's it's critical of management in some ways, or at least put some emphasis on documenting management activity. What do you think is going on here? It's interesting what you said about IR because he said management has turned over, right? They have a new CEO. I think he said a new CFO and I forgetting the third position that turned over, but I think again that's a some smoke they I found it compelling the the argument that they probably spent too much time trying to cut costs and not enough time thinking about their business and growing and diversifying and everything else. I think that's a that's sort of a satisfying thing to hear. It's so in vogue to praise 3G capital and zero-based budgeting and Kraft Heinz, which I brought up earlier, that's a 3G capital company and they are struggling. They also had a customer apparently take a dump in a Tim Hortons, which is also... What? A- <laughs> 3G capital had that happen? Well, Tim Hortons is... The, I think they were the owner of that. 
Okay, but if that's true, assuming that's true, then you, you know, maybe you need to look at your cost cutting and say, like, <laughs> there should be someone there to, to help, to not, to help that not become a story that people know about, like, whether that's preventing the incident in the first place, or whether that's, like, quietly dealing with it, like, Maybe you needed the headcount or you needed the quality employees to help manage that situation more appropriately. Totally. Since I haven't read the story, I won't go into any, I don't know the logistics there, but nice. (laughs) (laughs) Taking a dump. Now that's a, that's a behind the idea first. So, so anyway, I think that's sort of satisfying to, to think about the idea that cost cutting came back to bite them. I get the sense from this that they just didn't do a good job is what I get the sense. They didn't, and they may not have been able to do anything. They they really don't have a lot of control over the preferences of consumers. Yeah, they maybe could have invested to better get into the markets that are interesting to consumers now. They were incentivized poorly to continue maintaining short-term cash flow and short-term other things, both by their incentives and by what Wall Street rewards. And whether or not the CEO was forced out or left on his own terms and whether or not they were paid too much and everything else, I just think management, it sounds like it was just the case of management not being super successful. I saw a chart, it might have been Professor Demoterin from last week. I think I may have been looking at something on his website somewhere and he had a chart of the arc of a company and it's, you know, pre-revenue and then growth and then you finally hit earnings and then you're scaling and then you kind of die off as consumer preferences change. And I think that's where everything comes back to me here. And I think it sounds like management was not able to stem this tide, let alone reverse it. Yeah. Yeah. They needed to innovate. Maybe they needed to make cereal that goes with yogurt. They needed mm-hmm. to make breakfast foods that I, you know what they, look, I love sweet potatoes and it's because I'm a Green Bay Packers fan, but they're also sort of, of the carbs, they're one of the superfoods or whatever, and I eat them a lot for breakfast. Wait a second. Why is, I don't know the connection between Green Bay Packers fans and sweet potatoes. Oh, oh sorry. I thought everyone <laughs> knew this. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers in a, a profile a couple seasons ago for Sports Illustrated, I think, he disclosed that he eats a lot of sweet potatoes as part of his diet. Oh. And so to be as similar to Aaron Rodgers as I can <laughs> under the circumstances, I'd shout to Aaron Rodgers. I eat sweet potatoes for breakfast. And you know cool. what? It's, it's improving my accuracy. I'm much You're more able. accurate in, in the middle in my middle. job, not at but not at football. But oh, it just in my, in, it makes you more accurate at your job, you know, not just at sports. You're anyway, not able to hit between the lines. Okay. Like, get, <laughs> when you get back to the the point, which is the point is that's a change in my consumer preference, and it has to do with the change away from sugary, carbohydrate-driven dietary preferences. What if? Kellogg's was on this and was making sweet potato flakes or was exploring, you know, I said things that go good with yogurt or things that go good with avocados or there are businesses that basically make cereal or cereal like stuff that wouldn't be that hard to switch into that Kellogg's could have made some 
could have dampened this, I think. And if they were focused on cost reduction instead of innovation, that will look in hindsight like a mistake. On the other hand, like you said, what can Kellogg's do? Like Pop-Tarts are, they're just sugar. They're just big squares of sugar, mm-hmm. basically. But while we're speculating, kind of doing this weird consumer demand thing, which is rich in content, but difficult to really show any level of true market-beating insight on, I thought of this morning how people in global poverty, they switch out of, they, you know, they often, on 50 cents a day, a dollar a day, you subsist on rice or some other sort of cereal grain to get yourself. Mm -hmm. And as soon as people develop their economies enough to get out of that, they begin switching away from simple carbohydrate-driven diets and into better calories. I thought it was, yeah, yeah, they get their calories from better stuff. And I think it's funny or interesting that the United States, like, that seems to be just a global human drive to get better nutrients. And the United States is sort of, the consumer behavior for decades has sort of gone against that where, you know, we don't have very many people in global poverty here. We have a lot of people eating a lot of carbohydrates all the time. And I, I do wonder to what extent rhetoric and manipulation of consumer behavior and consumer choices factors into, this is not a part of Prescient's Point's argument, but I was thinking like big tobacco creating big, like addictive products that make you feel good in the short term, but have negative long-term consequences. I don't think I'm saying anything totally original by wondering whether a similar dynamic is at play with a relatively unhealthy thing where we continue to understand the health impacts as decades unfold. And it takes the consumer behavior lags that understanding due to marketing and all this other stuff. We're well afield of the idea. I, to come back to the idea, I'm just, as we talk about this stuff, I think I'm having a hard time mustering, not outrage, but sort of scorn for management or anything else. I just sort of come away. I'll give one perspective where somebody may be upset, but in general, I walk away seeing, seeing they're, they're in a tough industry. They haven't done a good job. And, their stock may or may not be overvalued and maybe their business hopes are not going to be very good over the long term. But most businesses do not make it a hundred years, do not make it forever. And so that all seems, I mean, it's not to be glib about it. I think Kellogg's is, you know, employs a lot of people. It's an important company, et cetera. But I just sort of think as I read this and that's where, the theme of what really matters here, I come to think about the perspective that would be upset is an investor in Kellogg's, I can tell, or an employee, somebody, a stakeholder in the company's future success, then the failure of management to address the changing industry or the changing consumer preferences and the management's games with the accounting that may or may not they're not nefarious, but they're not necessarily helpful to building a business, it would seem. That's that's where I would be certainly paying attention. And if if I didn't like what I saw, that's where I would have grounds to be upset. But it's not. And I guess I'm maybe that's an obvious thing. A short idea doesn't necessarily have to do that. I, I've read a lot of Prescient's Point's work in the past, and I'm going to come back to 
one of their ideas after we wrap up on this, but I think it's, I guess it is a little bit and a good job by them to not try to oversell on that front, but I think it, it's, that's often an element of their arguments and it's not, I couldn't come away feeling that here. I just kind of felt, okay, like Kellogg's is in bad shape. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I think when we think of short ideas, we kind of want to see something really diabolical taking place because it makes it so much more obvious that there's tremendous downside if the argument's convincing in that way. I agree with you that I don't think we get that here, but I think we do get a good sense of there's basis to believe that the market may not be perceiving the true underlying health of the business. And it's in this context of this overall decline, a thesis that we seem to both agree with as a general point. So going back to, yeah, focusing on what matters, I think what matters here is that General Mills is in trouble and didn't do a good job, exactly like you said. Does that make this a short? It's just harder. Maybe it's just mentally harder for me to think of these blue chip giant consumer companies as having the same level of downside. So when they do, then the crash is tremendous. But it's just hard. Kellogg, you're like short Kellogg's. There's a little bit of that for me. Like Kellogg's, they're, they're they made you know they made I ate their food. <laughs> Lots of it. You know, growing up. I don't anymore, but, you know, are they really in that deep of water? I don't know. What I like about it, to go back to Whitney Tilson, I was reviewing, he recently published a bunch of articles looking back on his short-selling career, published four articles on Seeking Alpha, and one of the articles was just, what's a good short? And he said, declining earnings. So like, get get out of... Don't try to short accelerating growth and valuation shorts are tough and whatever. Declining earnings. And I think to me in a weird way, this, if I were to short this sort of case along the lines of what you said with the short bud is really attractive because I don't know. I don't think Kellogg's is an obvious buyout target and I don't think they're suddenly going to spike really high. It's sort of a safer short position it's probably not super expensive to borrow and whatever else and i think this this article has a lot of good stuff and i just i think i would have i'm again i don't have the financial expertise so i'm not trying to equate myself but i think i would have structured this argument differently and i would have spent a little bit more time on the fundamental demand case and they allude to the demand, but they never really make the case for why demand is going down. And I think that's where I would have spent 75% of my time is just making the case that cereal and Kellogg's in decline. Then I would go to the accounting stuff to say, it may not seem like it's in decline, but it's worse than it seems right now because of this, this, and this. And then I would say there's also management issues and their balance sheet you know that I always like a, a short case that says, "Look, their cash flow is this. They need to pay this much in debt, and they need to pay this much in a dividend, and they're liable to cut the dividend or whatever else." And so I think there's a strong argument in here, but to me, it could have 
when I think of what matters, I think that's how I would have focused it. So that would be my point of sort of not nitpicking the case. I would need to spend more time either way, but just sort of the the emphasis in the article. So that's what I took away. What about what about you? Yeah, I'm with you on on that basic takeaway. I liked this one a lot because I'm maybe because of this industry industry stalwart in decline framework is just fresh in my mind and I'm just appreciative of it as some as something that I hadn't really considered much. We don't get a lot of those articles in Seeking Alpha. I don't think of things in that way in general. So I like this article overall for fitting in that framework and doing a good job within that framework. I agree with you that the demand case should be front and center here and developed because anecdotally, we had all these fun things to talk about in the decline of cereal. Can we validate that more than just this? Is it just a little gully that they're in right now? with respect to end demand or can we somehow prove that out using consumer behavior surveys or other other ways of sort of collecting data points that supports that case because that is the fulcrum of the case to me more than management's treat accounting treatments so i like this article a lot but i do agree with you i focusing on what matters i think what matters is the long-term consumer demand. And the, they certainly, to me, didn't flesh out any connection between the accounting issues and long-term performance necessarily. Although, no, to their credit, there is the balance sheet treatment and there mm-hmm. is the dividend discussion in the article. But again, the focus could have been different. Although, you know, this is a reserved piece. It is. And I, I like that. I respect, we get a lot of screaming ones on the short side. And this is kind of like, take a look. It's not going well. It's funny too, because it's all about relatively arcane accounting stuff. It's not really pitched. A lot of those screaming ones are sort of pitched at shareholders who don't understand the company as well. And this really isn't. It's not, it's easy to just kind of glaze over because this is not, it's interesting stuff, but it's not a headline manipulation or whatever else. It's just things aren't going well and let's show how they're shuffling things. So yeah, I, that's a well-made point. All right. Serial. Can I throw in one more anecdote on, on this story? It has and to be about cereal. Is it about cereal? Can it be about Udi's gluten-free? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My first year at Seeking Alpha, I held a t- tiny position in Boulder Brands, which is the had bought Udi's, or at some point they bought Udi's. They bought Glutino. They were making the gluten free push. And Prishan's Point actually submitted it in public, and I would, I think I was the publishing editor. They published this short idea on Boulder Brand, and they talked about how it was a SPAC. They talked about how it was growth, and they made this argument about patent expiration for their key for smart balance and earth balance or whatever. And my whole thesis in owning that was they've made a relatively healthy peanut butter that I can eat. And to me, that's a, they must be doing something right. That was my thesis. Peter Lynch over here, Peter Lynch. It's my one Peter Lynch moment. And I don't know. It was just such a, it was an interesting case. And 
it was a little bit screamier and it came up on the conference call and whatever else the stock dropped. The story ended up that Pinnacle bought them for 10 bucks a share, which was less than it was when the article came out, but still a validation of some value there. Correction, $11 a share. I don't know. It was just, to me, that was also, I, I don't think there was anything nefarious there, but it was something where you find an interesting angle, but you might oversell it and miss the fundamental of, in this case, maybe gluten-free isn't a fad. It is really a significant opportunity to serve a population that needs more options or whatever else. I don't know. I, I don't want to extrapolate too much, but I just sort of, when I think of these short ideas, I think about what matters and sometimes it, you get really excited about issue X or Y and you just forget that, oh, well, there's a bigger thing going on here. And even if they're not perfect on X or Y, that bigger thing is what really matters either way. Great point. And yeah, Udi's references, I'm always receptive. <laughs> Thank you, Udi's, for all you've done for me. You're, you managed to supply all the simple carbohydrates that I was un otherwise unable to <laughs> consume. So appreciate you for that. And uh, I hope you're... Your patents stay strong. I <laughs> sincerely hope. Actually, I don't, because then it would become much cheaper to buy your really seventy to one hundred percent marked up muffins. Yeah, stuff. they're they're expensive. I like their granola. They've got good granola. All right, good. Let's wrap. <laughs> we gotta leave it there. Let's go. We got we gotta have a snack. That's it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave a review on iTunes if you have the chance, as that will help us improve this podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we're expecting a special guest on Behind the Idea. If you have any investors in mind you'd love to hear join Behind the Idea, please let us know. You can tweet us at DanielSeekingA or at MBrooksTaylor. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.